Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. Shall we stand for the reading of God's word? Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all about that the Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done for Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, bought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. May God add his blessing to this his word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us this morning, that you would take the truths that we have just heard read to us, and that you would make them understandable in our, in our minds, that we would think through ways that we should apply them in our week, that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, that we would image your Son, Jesus Christ, as you designed us to do. We ask you all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, normally I start off my messages asking a question to get people thinking, maybe telling a story. Today I'd like to do something unusual. I'd like to recount, oddly enough, a commercial. Because this will give us an idea where we're going in today's message. The commercial I'd like to recount is the Capital One credit card. Now, this is a credit card company that they will use a particular scenario to promote something that their card does that comes into, causes us to question, oh, does my card do that? In one scene, they have Jennifer Gardner sitting all, you know, in, in regular attire, dressed nicely, and she's sitting in the penalty box at a, at a 
a hockey game, and there's a, a guy in there that's just been thrown in, a hockey player that's just been thrown in the penalty box, and he, he, you know, he's sitting next to him, and he's looking over like, what are you doing in here? There's a little bit of conversation between the two, and he's upset, and he takes his, his hockey stick, and he breaks it over the, the, the railing there. And she says, well, let's see, you know, it's a good thing that, uh, it would be a good thing if you knew that Capital One has double points because that would take care of your new stick you're going to need. And, and that's the take on the benefit that it, it uh, provides. And then in another version, they're deep into the jungle. And this, all of a sudden, uh, this one individual who's on the safari and working their way through the, the heavy brush says, oh, no, I've lost my credit card. And the, the narrator gets on, and, uh, and uh, I should say the, the other person uh, leading the safari says, well, if you had a Capital One credit card, you wouldn't be worried about loss or theft. And then it, before the commercial ends, it breaks away to a bunch of monkeys that have found the card and are partying like crazy on everything that they purchased on the card. So there's that, that thought of, oh, does my card stop that from happening? You know, someone getting my card and just partying with it? And the, the key tagline, some of you have already thought about this, that every one of their commercials ends with, what is in your wallet? In other words, do you have our card or do you have something less? Well, today's title of the message is, what is in your proclamation? Your theological and personal proclamation of who God is. We're going to see that Moses has a particular proclamation that is most helpful for us to use, to study, to understand what a healthy proclamation would have in it. And when I say proclamation, some of you might be saying, is, that, is he talking like a testimony? Yeah, I suppose you could use that word, an account of, of who God is and what he has done in your life. But we'll see that in this passage, though it wasn't read today in the passage, the word proclamation, you're going to see that the word's actually there. When we get there, I'll point it out. So as you look at your uh, takeaway, if you look at the bulletin on the back side of the bulletin where the uh, uh, sermon outline is, you'll see that the takeaway there is, is your proclamation about God exclusively a theological history lesson of the past? Or is it filled with current accounts of his presence, power, and authority in your life? Moses' proclamation was filled with current events. One of the things I hope we're starting to process as we think through this sermon, this message, is that when I, if I were to, someone to ask me, tell me about your God, I need to give a theological foundation for who he is by what he has said. But one of the ways I make it real is explain to them how he is real in my life. Where in my life has I seen his presence, his, his power, and his authority demonstrated? And if our lives are missing that part of the proclamation, or if our testimony is missing that part of the proclamation, is God just a history figure? Would you be compelled to want to know more about this God who has no effect, no current effect, on the person that is proclaiming who he is to you. 
So it's with that understanding we want to take a deeper dive and to try and figure out what does a healthy, what does a God-fearing, what does a God-relating proclamation look like? So the first bullet point we see here is a proclamation that experiences life-changing power. And we'll be reading again from Exodus 18, verses 1 through 4. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his, his people, how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. That's the Exodus experience that we've already gone through in the earlier chapters of, of Exodus. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken, the idea there is taken in or received, Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he, Moses, had sent her home along with her two sons. So at some point, Moses has sent Zipporah and the two sons back to her father-in-law, Jethro, excuse me, to her father, Jethro, his father-in-law, for, we believe, probably safety reasons, but we're never told when that takes place. All we, all we know now is that there's a, 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 uh, a meeting of sorts where Jethro is bringing them to uh, Moses, and it continues along. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in, in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So I hope you're asking, uh, Nick, this is about proclamation. I didn't hear any proclamation in there. All I've got is dad bringing his daughter and his two grandsons to Moses. And uh, where do we have any proclamation? Well, I want to suggest to you that both of the names of the sons are the beginnings of Moses' proclamation of who his God is and who he is in relationship to his God. Let's take a look at Gershom to begin with in, in, in the order, the eldest. His name uh, means, it's only one word, it means sojourner, which is another way of saying stranger if you're not familiar with that term. He said, in fact, Moses takes that and he gives greater explanation as to why he named his son that. He said this as, as connecting his son's name to a, to a situation, an event in his life. He says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. He has that child in Midian. The foreign land he's speaking of is Egypt. It's the land he grew up in. But he now sees that that land is a foreign land. That land is not his own. It's interesting. We might miss this if we go by it too fast. This is an identity statement. All of us work out of what we understand to be our identity. It's out of our identity that we, we live and breathe. We function. I'm an American citizen. I'm a male. I'm a father. All of this causes identity. This he is realigning by way of, of identifying his son, this event that changed his identity. I'm not a citizen of Egypt, is what he's saying. I'm only a sojourner in Egypt. I'm a stranger passing through Egypt, or at least I was, as he looks back. He declares that Egypt is not his home. 
that he is a citizen of a promised kingdom. He doesn't know anything about this kingdom in reality, in depth, I might say. He hasn't experienced it. It's somewhere future. But he knows enough to say, this is not my identity. This, I am not a citizen here. I am only a sojourner. So I want to pose a question to you. Is this world, this culture, where you live, all the, the, the customs, the, the social expectations, is this your home? Are you satisfied with the world's niceties? I prefer the word trappings. If you're young and you haven't ever heard that word before, trappings is a neat way of saying it, the, the, the nicer pleasant, pleasantries of life. But I think they're appropriately called trappings because it are those treasures that actually seize our heart and take control of them. They look like niceties, but they act like trappings that seize our heart and hold us and restrict us and pull us away from that, which should be a priority. Are you a citizen of this world, of this kingdom, or are you like Moses, seeking the kingdom of God? Again, Moses doesn't know much about the kingdom of God, but he knows he's no longer a citizen of Egypt, and he wants to seek it. He's opened his eyes and is seeking that invisible kingdom, if you will, that one day will be a, a, a reality in the form of the land of promise, the land of Canaan, but it's not right now to him. Would your proclamation about God demonstrate that you are somebody who is seeking God's invisible kingdom here in this physical world? Or maybe not. Would your proclamation sound like you have been trapped in your sin? You might profess Jesus Christ with words as your Savior, as your Deliverer, but your proclamation is missing that component of your, of your understanding of who God is, and it, it lacks power to the one you're conveying it to. We cannot let the trappings of this world hold us in bondage, that those become the desires that we're seeking through. We're no different than the culture that is looking for happiness in the trappings and those, the, those pleasures that are shiny and neat and, and, and carry our hearts for as long as they do, and then they fade, and then we look for the next trapping to fulfill that desire. Jesus Christ himself says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I want to connect with you that that is not just a statement that's a statement of obedience. It is that, and a statement of responsibility, a statement that says, I trust in God. It's, it is all those. But I want to suggest to you that that identifies a citizen of the kingdom. That identifies a sojourner. If I'm seeking the kingdom of God in this physical world, I'm seeking an invisible kingdom that I, I can't show people, but I can tell people about in my proclamation based on my relationship with my God. I can be able to show them, look, 
There's this event where I experienced God's presence. I've seen his power in my life when I was being overwhelmed by the rage of whatever the situation was, by the storm I was going through. I know God's authority because the world tells me to do this, and I have said no. I know it sounds like hypocrisy or something odd for you, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to honor God, and I'm going to go and do what God says to do. The very fact that you're here on Sunday morning, you're countercultural. You're going against what the, counter, what the culture says is important. You're demonstrating that your God is important enough to come worship one in seven days as a people of God. Let that be an encouragement to you. You are demonstrating it. When you share your proclamation, is worship important to you? Well, let's take a look at Eleazar. His name means God is help. And Moses contextualizes it by saying this, the God of my father, certainly his biological father, but you can also see in here, this is a, a formulaic statement that the patriarchs constantly use. It looks back to, the, to Abraham who initiated the covenant, Isaac, Jacob. They always refer back to the, or at least the, the ones that follow uh, Abraham, refer back to the God of their father. Je Moses, in some sense, is identifying himself as the modern-day patriarch of the people, the one that God is saying, take my people forward. In fact, he's going to be the mediator, the one who stands between God and man, making it possible for man to navigate this wilderness experience. So God is help. Moses knew that God had been his help. He names this child before the exodus. He knew God as his help, it, it says here in the, in the passage, because he saved him from the sword of Pharaoh. It wasn't the sword of Pharaoh when Pharaoh was coming with the armies. That's later on in his account. It's the sword of Pharaoh when he's fleeing after killing the Egyptian who had discovered that he had harmed somebody, that, mur that more than harmed, Moses had killed somebody. And so Moses is fleeing his life from the sword of Pharaoh. But Moses knows God not only just pre-Exodus. He knows him as his helper because God is the one that allowed him to be saved out of the, uh, or rescued out, or rescued away from the Egyptian army that pursued the people of God. He is the one last week we read about that the, Am the I should say, Amalek, who represents the Amalekites, was trying to make war. In fact, he successfully made war, if you will, at least had a single battle that, that God himself waged for them and defeated. Moses understands God is my help. So the question is, is God your help? Is God an addendum to your life? Or is God actively helping you in your life? If I said right now, go, and I pointed to somebody and said, let me hear your proclamation of who your God is as it relates, not theologically, as it relates to what he's doing in your life now. Could you give an example that God is actually my help? We have to remember that God is not only our help, our deliverer. We saw last week with the Amalekites 
that as Moses was raising the staff up on the mount, up on the hill, indicating God's presence, power, and authority to win the battle, that Joshua and the people were also fighting the battle. But ultimately, as long as Moses kept that presence, power, and authority in picture, in view, it was God that was actually defending them. We need to remember that God helps us as we're going through this, this world waging the war against the spiritual darkness, against the, the sin that would have us fall, that would have us taken away from God. Well, we look at our next idea, our next descriptor, our next insight into what a, a healthy proclamation is and a, a proclamation that fulfills its promises. And what's neat here is the Hebrew gives us a little more than what you read or what was read to you in the SV today. Let me show you what the Hebrew bears out in today's scripture. It says this in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness. He, he is emphasized. Where it lands in the, the sentence and how he uses the pronoun he, there's two ways to do it. You're just going to have to trust me on this. He is emphasized in the, in the uh, Hebrew here. He was encamped, and then yours drops off the word there. He was encamped there, where? At the mountain of God. Moses is conveying something important about him being at the mountain of God. Let's continue on before we stop and, and dig into that deeper. And I do want to explain, the mountain of God is, is Sinai. But I want you to think of it this way. He's not at the base of the mountain. We're approximately, right here in Phoenix, Arizona, about 30 miles due north of South Mountain. If we were sitting on the 101, another mile and a half, two miles further north, because the 101 freeway is higher, we could look to the south and we could see South Mountain because it's a very, very tall mountain in our area. We would say, we live in the Valley of the Sun, we are part of, or we can, we can say that we're in the region of South Mountain. We have no problem saying, yeah, 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 I live in the region of South Mountain, I can see it. That's the idea here. We're not gonna see them actually arrive at South Mountain, <laughs> South Mountain, good Nick, at Sinai uh, until chapter 19. But they're in the region and they can see it so what's the importance of seeing it? Let's continue on. In verse 6, And when he went, excuse me, and when he sent Moses, excuse me, and, and when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to greet his father-in-law and bowed down. It's a, that's an expression of honor. He's honoring his father-in-law. I don't know about you, but I, as a married man, I always went out of my way to honor my father-in-law. He was a man worthy of honor, and I wanted to demonstrate that because it demonstrated honor to my wife as well. This is what we see happening here. It's more than just that. It's an ancient Near East custom. Moses' father-in-law happens to be a priest, which also is the honoring concept that's going into it. And he kissed them. The idea of that is a greeting. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Okay, so Nick, it's time to show your hand. What's the big deal about Moses being at Mount Sinai? Well, if you were to recall back in Exodus and earlier, 
we have Moses engaging the angel of the Lord in the burning bush in chapter 3. And Moses is scared. The, the, the Lord is saying, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to, to bring my people out. And Moses is thinking, yeah, the last time I was there, I got chased out. And I barely made it here because of, only because of you. I should be dead, but I made it here safely. You want me to go back there. I'm a little worried about this. I'm a little fearful for my life. What indication are you going to give me that this will be a success? So God gives him a, a sign. He gives him a promise in chapter 3. And listen to this promise because it's fulfilled. It's be, it is fulfilled and it's still beginning to be fulfilled in our passage today. This is what the interaction with, with Moses and, and Yahweh or God, Lord, is taking place in Exodus 3, 11 and 12. It says this, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt out of, excuse me, of Israel out of Egypt? He, God, said, But I will be with you. Hear the presence? And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt and shall serve God on this mountain. The people, in their overwhelming numbers, 600,000 men, if you count the women and children, were, over, were plus 2 million, are standing in this wilderness. They have been brought successfully out of Egypt. Against all odds, they have no army and they're against the world superpower, and God makes it possible to get them out of Egypt and destroy the superpower with the waters of the Red Sea. They stand there, and they, can, they are there within view of Sinai. The promise is fulfilled and continues to be filled as, fulfilled as they march to Sinai. Would that not impress you? And what a wonderful way for God to give an object of his, of his stability. You've got this giant mountain in front of you that you're heading to. You're getting smaller. The mountain's getting bigger. And you're, reali you're realizing the presence and power and authority of your God in the object you're headed to. Be beautiful picture that God does. Well, I want to ask you, what promise from the Bible has God recently fulfilled in your life? I can, I can almost feel some people in, the, in, the, uh, in, in today's congregation, you know, like, oh, I'm glad this isn't an interactive sermon. I'm glad he's not going to ask me because I'm not sure I could think of something quickly enough. Well, that's actually a typical response. But it's not a good response. It's a response that at times I myself find myself going, I'm lacking. I can't get, I, I, I gotta think through the promises that God has made for me because I am confused, I'm scared, I'm fearful, I'm anxious. There are promises I'm missing here because if I knew the promises and I was relying on the promises, I wouldn't be demonstrating anxiety. I wouldn't be demonstrating fear. I wouldn't be on the gateway of all my sin, which happens to be anxiety for me. That's the biggie. You pass through that door and you get all next sin. Why? What, what is it? Because I fail to process correctly what the promises are. If you're a new believer, it's understandable. You don't know 
the promises yet. You're, you're learning them. You're listening under the, the, the preaching of God's word. You're engaging with people, whether it be in your personal life or at fellowship, when we go and eat the meal and learning more and more about this God. And you're learning how this God has promises that he promises to fulfill in your life, not just history, not just historical things or events that have happened. Maybe you're a believer that's not a baby believer in time, but you've never been taught to read the Bible in such a way that you find the promises, you realize those promises are not just for this time in history, but they carry over. Now, you don't want to get a wrong understanding. We have a, a thing called name it and claim it in, the, in our culture where you take all the promises that God ever gave his people and you make them one for one. Well, he promised that for that person, so he's going to do exactly the same thing for me. That's wrong. It's wrong understanding. But oftentimes, God is using that person as a demonstration of the promise itself still applying. Not a one-for-one one applying, but still applying. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, you see the, the message of the promise of, God's, of God being present with us. In fact, Jesus himself, we talked about it last week. Lo, I am, all, I am with you always, it says. That's the King James Version. Lo means behold. What does he do? He leaves with us the person of the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us. When we come together as the people of God, God comes here in a corporate sense. It's, it's different than what it is as the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us individually. Corporately, he's here with us today as the, as the God of his people. Maybe you've become distracted. Maybe you've become dull. Maybe you become like me, overwhelmed by what you're looking at at times, and you stop remembering the promises of God. Dwell on them. If you have a spouse, a friend, if you just want to dwell on them yourself, rehearse them in your mind. Write them down, for goodness sakes, if you might forget them, so that you can go back to them in the midst of your, your cloudiness that the, the storm brings to your mind. Be reminded that our God is a God who fulfills his promises and make it a part of your proclamation. How powerful that is when you share that with somebody and they go, your God is real? Your God did that in your lifetime? Yeah, my God's done that more than once. That's, that's a proclamation that has power. And the third co component that we see here it's from verses 8 through 12. It says, A proclamation that unites peoples and compels shared worship. So let's read this. Exodus 18, 8 through 12. Then Moses told, full stop. The word has more meaning than just told to us. I truly wish the translators of the ESV would have translated it the same way they translated it earlier. It's the same word. Let me read to you how they translated it earlier in Exodus. It states this in Exodus 9, 15 to 17. This is God dealing with the seventh um, plague that he's brought on Egypt. He says this in Exodus 9, 15 to 17. For by now... I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's letting Pharaoh know, I've chosen, seven, I've chosen ten. He doesn't know how many there are, but I could have easily, in any one of the plagues, just removed all you people. 
There's a reason why I've done it. In fact, if you were part of this morning's Sunday school, Pastor Pete reminded us that he uses 10 as a way of of demonstrating a polemic, an argument against all the false gods of Egypt, and he defeats them one by one. The plagues are specific to the gods that are supposed to have authority and a power over these areas, and God just picks them off like they're flies. He just, and they're gone. You're nothing. He continues on in in verse 16 of of chapter 9. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh, this superpower. Kind of gives you hope when you see the evil superpowers that are out there in our culture. I can't help but have hope because I see our own, our own selves, Americans, as turning so evil as a superpower. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be, and here's the key word, proclaimed. So that my name may be proclaimed. What does it mean to proclaim? It means to give a detailed account. That's the way the Hebrew word explains itself there. They would get that. It's not just a passing by account. In fact, we're going to see in in this passage that when we come back to chapter 18 here, where we're in today, how detailed of an account that Moses gives. Interesting. Your proclamation should be a detailed account of these many aspects of God's current involvement in your life. And he continues on because it plays, this verse itself plays into the understanding of our verse today. He says, so that you may, excuse me, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And in verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Pharaoh, the incarnate false god, the one who believes that he is a god in the flesh, is exalting himself above God's people, and God says, I'll have none of it. I will punish you for what you are doing. Now, come back armed with that information. Now let us read our passage again. Then Moses proclaimed, gave a detailed account. Listen to the aspects. One, to his father-in-law, all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. What's another category he goes into? And all the hardships, the lack of food and water that they had come upon, in other words. Another part of his testimony to, to his father-in-law of, of his greatness of his God. And this was in the way or on the journey. And how Yahweh had delivered them. He even delivered them just most recently from Amalek and their attempts the, the Amalekites attempt to extinct them off the face of the earth. It's a current understanding of what God is doing in their life or in his life and the life of the people. And it continues on. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh. He blesses specifically the name, the personal name he told Moses when they ask what my name is, tell them it is Yahweh. I am the, and it literally means the self-existent one, the one who has never came into being, the one who has always been a being that created all that we know in, in this world. That's the true, the one true living God. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you 
And he's speaking that's in the plural, all of you. Out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11. Listen to what he now is convinced of because of the proclamation that he heard on a first-person first account of Moses giving it to him. He says this, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Notice the small g, all false gods, all fallen beings, all fallen angelic beings that want to be worshipped. Because in this affair, they... Who's the they? Well, grammatically speaking, the they can only be the false gods. In this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Remember we read that in chapter 3? He is rebuking Pharaoh for dealing arrogantly with his people. And he is saying here, all of the false gods of Egypt have dealt arrogantly. How dare you treat my people like commoners? They are my set-apart people for a specific plan. That's your God. That's how your God takes his stance. Ever had a big brother stand up for you in, a, in the schoolhouse fight or, or against a bully at work or whatever friend might have done that? Your God is your defender. Your God cares about you. Your God says, no, 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 no. That won't go unpunished. These are my people. He continues on. In verse 12, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and this is where we see the worship taking place, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel. That represents, the elders represent the people of Israel. We see two people groups. Jethro represents as the priest of Midian, the Midianite people. The elders represent the people of Israel. We have two people coming together to worship the one true living God. And he says, and we continue on, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. Interesting. The before there means in the presence of God. When you and I come to worship on the Lord's day, we come uniquely into the presence of God as the people of God. Don't come here forgetting that. If you forget that, it, this, this becomes nothing more than a, a checkbox. I made it. I was, I, was, I was responsible. I fulfilled my duty. I'm here. Check. Done. No, 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 no. Remember that when you're coming, that which you can only experience by way of coming to the Lord's presence to worship him as a people of God happens here on Sunday morning. It's uniquely different. Praise be to God that he is the God that, that allows us to understand his presence and that uniqueness. The false gods of Egypt, they never come into the presence of the people. They mock the people. They use the people. They enslave the people. God loves us and comforts us when we come and into his presence. Jethro's ideology, his, I should say his theology, isn't perfect. Who knows if he even believes in these other gods anymore. But he rightly knows now that Yahweh is above all other gods. That's a starting point. A starting point of understanding who this God is. Let us consider... As we ponder 
our proclamation, do we not only include the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior, he has died an atoning death for us. He died in our place for our sins. I grew up being taught that Jesus Christ was my example, and I was trying to work my way to heaven to be good enough. I came to the place where Jesus opened up my ears, opened up my eyes, and I realized that, Nick, although you are a policeman, even the murderer has a right to go to, to heaven. And I go, what kind of God is, is going to do that? I've worked hard. Don't you know I'm a policeman? I wear the uniform that says I'm righteous. I'm, an, I'm an, an enforcer of the law. And God says, no, you're not righteous. You know who you are. You are an instrument of righteousness by keeping the law, but you need Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ does for us that no one else could do. He was perfect. He was sinless. So he's the only Lamb of God that could be sacrificed, that could atone for us, for our sins, that could take our place on that cross. And he did it. And he delivered us from death and sin by demonstrating his power over death by rising from a cross. That is the theological truth of your proclamation. Now give the people, and let me tell you what that looks like in my life. Let me tell you about what God has done to deliver me in this year, 2023. What he has done to fulfill his promises of his presence, of his sustaining grace when I wanted to give up. Let me tell you about that current event in my life and who my God is. He is the true, I should say the one true living God. He is not dead and distant. He is a God worthy of a proclamation that identifies truly who he is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ that carried out that salvation by, by dying on a cross in our place. We thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit that you and your son sent to dwell in us. The tabernacle that was always in the presence of the people in the Old Testament now dwells in us, unworthy creatures, unworthy, and yet you called us to be image bearers. And you give us the, the person of the Holy Spirit to bear image to your greatness, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God who is powerful, who is present, and has authority over our lives. Please use those truths to remind us to give you glory in our walking in this life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.